What's up, everybody? My name is Aaron Marler, and this is the Voice in the Wilderness podcast. Today's topic is something that I really find interesting. Today, we're going to be talking about the Nephilim and really what they are, where they come from, where they are in the Bible, and whether or not they are still alive and active today. So, with all that being said, let's get right into the episode. Okay, so today's episode is going to be about the Nephilim. Now, my first question about this, what are the Nephilim? Because it's something like I've heard a lot of recently, but what are they exactly? Well, the Nephilim are basically half-angelic half-human hybrids okay uh when you read in the book of genesis in the uh, sixth chapter and I'll, I'll just go ahead and uh read those verses to give a little basis it says in verse one and it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born unto them that the sons of god saw the daughters of men that they were fair and they took them wives of all which they chose and the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he is also his flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. Verse 4, There were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men, which were of old men of renown. And then, of course, basically in verse 5, basically God sees what's going on on the earth, and basically by verse six he, he regretted that he even made man and that's when he basically decided he was going to send a great flood and basically uh do a lot of house cleaning uh, and so when you look at that you can see that the first uh five uh verses of uh chapter six of genesis is the circumstances that actually brought on uh the uh, great flood of, of, uh, of that time. So the Nephilim as a result are rather important. Uh, we are told that basically, like you see these sons of God, and I'll explain quickly what they are. The sons of God is simply a pseudonym for angels, okay? The sons of God were angelic beings and are angelic beings and basically um, there was a lot of interaction between the earth realm and heaven, um, more obviously so, so then than now, although there is still a great deal of angelic uh, interaction between uh, earth and heaven. Uh, in those pre-flood days, it was huge uh, amount of it. And uh, even after the flood, I mean, when Jacob was running from his brother Esau, and he basically runs into the uh, uh, away, and he ends up at a place that he later would name Bethel, the house of God. He basically laid down there. He took a nap with his head using a rock as a pillow, and uh, he did not realize that essentially uh, when he woke up and he's looking, he can see 
what uh, is described in the King James Version as, as almost like a ladder. And angels yeah. at, are ascending and descending uh, in that location. And so we might, uh, you know, depending on where people's terminology come from, people might call that uh, a gateway. They might call it a portal. They might call it an open heaven. Whatever phraseology you use, Bethel was a place, a location in which um, angelic beings would basically uh, ascend and descend. And so it was kind of like a hotspot is what it sounds like. Pretty much. And in Job, there's, there's actually specific times in which meetings were held of these angelic beings. In Job, it talks about that on a specific day, the sons of God were assembled and basically Satan walks in there because he is an angelic being. And then there's that little uh, interaction between uh, God and, and Satan discussing uh, Job. And that's when, uh, when Satan petitioned basically uh, God to allow him to attack Job. And we talked about that on a different uh, program. But so you have this situation where the sons of God were angelic beings. Sometimes they're referred to by the name of watchers. Okay. okay. And so... Does you, that you have any, that. like, uh, difference to it? Or is it just, like, another name for... Just basically another pseudonym for okay. them. Uh, it, it all depends on... Much of it depends on how ancient manuscripts were uh, translated into English and all that. So a lot of people refer to them as watchers. Some refer to them as sons of God. Others as angels. But it um, all ends up meaning the same thing. Pretty much meaning the same thing. Now I know that there are people who basically theorize that the sons of God here are actually not angelic beings, uh, but that they are actually descendants of uh, Seth, the third child of Adam and Eve, and that somehow you know what was going on was that people of noble character and birth were basically uh getting you know the nasty on with you know a lot of a lot of these um let's just say um lesser females i guess would be the way that would be described but honestly that's pretty i i consider that to be an extraordinary lame interpretation of that that sounds like they're trying to make it more complicated and the other way is like just too simple for them. Right. There's there's uh, the earliest um, views on the uh, interpretation of the sons of God and who they were, uh, both in the scripture and uh, in uh, extra biblical sources, basically are pretty clear that these are angelic beings, not a Sethite line of kings or royalty or whatever. That was kind of a, a later theorizing, and uh, it really doesn't seem to hold water. Uh, basically, if you look at what's going on here, um, simply having um, an intermarriage between um, earthly rulers and non-royals and producing uh, basically... Uh, Heroes, yeah. if you want to use that term, 
that's hardly something that would no. provoke God to actually send to send a, a flood. flood to destroy yeah. you know, <laughs> virtually all of humanity. That hardly provokes that kind of a it doesn't of make a sense. reaction. No, it it's a pretty lame explanation as as alternatives go. But uh, yeah. But all the but you said you use the term heroes like so the Nephilim they were. Like when they came in, like because it said there were giants in the land. The giants, I, I'm assuming, would be uh, the Nephilim at that time, or yeah. What's going on is really interesting here in in Genesis six because you have these watchers slash sons of God slash uh, you know angels, and what they're doing is they're basically having you know relations with uh, human females and the product of this interaction is these women are giving birth to these strange hybrids that are half angelic and half human. Now, um, there's also a term that is used, you see a lot in fiction now, uh, demigods, okay? That usually is, is referred to in, uh, among pagan, uh, religions, you know, the Greco-Roman pantheon and all that, where basically what you would have is you'd have a uh, Zeus, for instance. If you uh, study uh, Zeus at all, you'll find out that Zeus was hardly um, very celibate. Uh, besides, <laughs> he got around. Besides his own wife, Hera, he got it on with basically, it seemed like every... Anything that breathed. Pretty much every every human female he could basically get to, it seemed like every nymph, every goddess, every whatever uh, he could basically um, get, get contact to. with. Yeah. yeah, he seemed to be, and he was producing offsprings by these. And these legends of the uh, Greek and Roman gods and all that, basically, they echo uh, what was actually going on. In uh, Genesis chapter 6, you have all of these ancient so-called gods that basically are uh, having relations not only with um, human females, but they're also, but also with the offspring of these things. And it causes all kinds of very strange variants. Um, there's, like I say, these hybrids. Uh, in terms of, for instance, the uh, uh, Greco-Roman pantheon, you have um, characters like uh, Heracles, uh, Hercules, basically. Yeah. Uh, you have uh, Perseus. You have, you know, uh, a lot of these of these hybrids, and um, they have extraordinary strength. They are often extraordinary large. They're um, obviously different. Exactly, and and so when you're looking at this, these are these are people that have abilities that are beyond normal humanity, even the humanity that uh, um, existed in the what's called the antediluvian world, which is a very you know uh, fancy uh, uh, term for. Before the deluge, antediluvian is. I was about to say that went above my head, but I'm nodding along yeah, as if yeah, yes, yeah, that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, <laughs> anti being before uh, diluvian, basically referring to the deluge or the flood. So, so antediluvian world is the world before the flood. They could is, just say before the flood. 
But no, someone went to college. Yeah, somebody basically, yeah, pre-flood and antediluvian are basically the same terminology. Yeah, because that made my brain hurt for two seconds, but it's fine. <laughs> well, you know, if you can't make it into a, a large, extraordinarily pretentious term yeah. that... Uh, that people can be baffled by, then you really aren't doing your job. Apparently, <laughs> in certain uh, in certain scholarly uh, <laughs> realms. So, at any rate, so you've got this situation going on, and they're giving uh, birth. These these women are to these hybrids that are the Nephilim. Now, there's also and and you see these deals it, where it says there are giants in the earth in, the, in those days. Um, you also see the term um, giants um, when you see it in the King James Version. The reason that you see it basically there in, in the King James Version and other translations is when they took the term um, Nephilim and they took the original term because Nephilim is, you know, a, 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 an ancient linguistic term when they were translating the scripture into the Greek language, they needed a Greek equivalent to Nephilim. And they needed to be able to get the concept of what a Nephilim was to the Greek-speaking world. And so what they used was, they used the term gigantes or giants. And so because they wanted to to explain that these were not normal you know beings and so the greco-roman world really the greeks and the romans later had an understanding of giants they have an understanding of demigods and all this and they needed to find an equivalent term that they could you know uh basically translate because these beings were of significant stature in fact later on and and these uh beings get known as well different terms uh the nephilim um the, and then later on you see them listed under the names like uh rephaim um there's the uh emim which is what the moabites called the rephaim and then you have you know different uh, uh, different terms um, but all these different terms are gory. just going back to the same same thing. Pretty much. So what they did was when they translated, they translated the Hebrew into Greek, and then they translated the Greek in what's called the Vulgate. Man, a fellow named uh, Jerome, uh, as I recall, took the scriptures, and he took it, and he's like, you know what, the 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 language is changing. We've got to make sure we provide a translation of the scripture. So he basically took the Greek um, scriptures and he translated them into the Latin tongue. And so it became giants. And since many of our Bible translations were actually based on Jerome's Vulgate, then that's why the term giants keeps showing up in, in modern Bibles in, in regards to this. So. That's why you see the term giant, but the original terminology basically is, yeah. is Nephilim. And the term Nephilim actually has to do with, it has the connotation of, of fallen. Okay. Okay. And basically, you might, because these angels are falling, 
they are falling from basically their position. They're falling from their moral standard. They're falling. And, and God is going to um, come down hard on these, on these boys. Uh, they're also calling, causing mankind to fall. So these are basically falling angels or fallen angels. Uh, these watchers, sons of God, angelic beings. And the Nephilim are basically the progeny of the fallen. They're the fallen ones or the ones who cause others to fall. And so there's that connotation in the word Nephilim, um, basically. And, and so um, when, when you have that, um, the Bible does not go into copious amounts of detail. Yeah. However, there is an understanding of what happened to these angels, watchers, um, you know, sons of God, who basically interacted with human females. And actually, um, in the New Testament, there's actually a reference to this, where basically it talks about um, those who are bound basically in chains of darkness in a place called uh, Tartarus. And so you have, and, and that was one of those things they used the word Tartarus in the New Testament because that's a Greek term, yeah. Greco-Roman term too, and it has specific meaning. Um, in the Greco-Roman culture, people understood that Tartarus was a place in which the Titans were kept captive. And the Titans were this uh, group of, of uh of extraordinarily powerful beings that basically were usually, well, they were descended, they were almost always mothered by uh, Gaia, yeah, which was the Earth Mother Goddess. And usually by, uh, depending on which narrative it is, by a couple of the different Greco-Roman gods, usually uh, the god Uranus, who was the god of the sky. Okay, so what you had was you had a, a, a union of heaven and earth. Mm, mm. And so even in the Greco-Roman pantheon of what happens between Uranus and, and, and Gaia, there's this understanding of the time in which heavenly beings interacted with earthly females and produced extraordinarily powerful beings, which were then imprisoned in uh, this place called Tartarus. And so... It's like they we, almost just copied what it, the Bible... It uh, was, essentially what it was is it was a corrupted memory of these things. And that's yeah. what most of these... Um, Greek legends. are. Exactly. They, they maintained a knowledge of these things, but over time and, and, and being away from God, the source... It's of gotten corrupted. Exactly. And so it becomes reworked as different... Uh, as different uh, uh, themes within their own uh, uh, mythology. Exactly. And so um, one of the things that you have to remember is, again, not only in 2 Peter 2, 4, where Tartarus is mentioned, but there's also a, a reference in, uh, in the book of Jude, which, of course, is only one chapter long, very short book. And uh, in verses 14 and 15, um, he talks about, uh, he makes reference, it's interesting, he does something really interesting, Jude does. And it was pretty controversial even when, when they were assembling the New Testament and deciding what books would be accepted and which books weren't. We don't really think about how we got our Bible today. 
No. You know, yeah. I mean, let's be honest. There was at one point a God-led group of men who put together what books would comprise the Old Testament. Okay. And then when they had uh, what was called, what's referred to as a closed canon of scripture, um, they had these books of what is the Old Testament, but there were actually other books still around. And there was books in between when the Old Testament ends and when the New Testament begins. And there's a certain number of these books that are included. You see them in Catholic Bibles. You see them in many very old Protestant Bibles. These are the works known as the Apocrypha. And they span the time period from the end of the Old Testament to the beginning of the New Testament. And they kind of fill you in on what was going on there with things like what the Maccabean Rebellion and all of that sort of thing. And, and what happened between the four or so centuries between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. But then you've got the New Testament, and there was a lot of different criteria that went into deciding what became part of the New Testament. And part of the deal was it had to have, one of the basic deals is if it's written by an apostle, one of the 12 disciples, or by somebody who had direct access to them, well, that's a big that's a big thumbs up. Yeah. And that's how the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, basically enter the picture. And, of course, Luke, the physician, had direct access to both Peter and Paul when he wrote not only the book of Luke, but the sequel, the book of Acts. Yeah. So the first five books of the New Testament were pretty much no-brainers. Um, now, then you get to the letters of Paul, okay? And there was really... Uh, a dispute over which ones were genuine and which ones weren't and they had to get into that and then there was then you got the the letters of uh first second uh, basically the small epistles of of john the, the 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 small ones of peter yeah and all of that then you move on to the ones that were a little more uh fussed over uh the book of james for instance uh, that was a big that was a big issue. There was an issue there because it wasn't written by an actual apostle. Okay? This is not James uh as in James and John the sons of, of Zebedee. Okay? That's not that James. This is James the actual half brother of Christ. Oh. Yes. Well, this is a thing. <laughs> exactly. Well, then why would that be such an issue if he was a half brother? You know. Well, it was about criteria. Um, okay. It was about criteria. They were having to decide who was, how genuine was this? Was it really written by the person? Yeah. There was a lot of people who were writing so-called gospels and letters, and claiming that it was actually this person or that person, but it wasn't. And they considered this legitimate. I know it seems really weird to our mentality now that this was actually considered a legitimate uh, way of thinking. But the thought process was this, that if the spirit that inhabited Paul is giving me this revelation and I'm writing this quote-unquote epistle or this quote-unquote gospel, then... I can put their name on it because it was the same spirit who dwelt in them mm. who is revealing this to me. You see this with a lot of the Gnostic yeah. documentations. You see this. And and it was actually a thing in, in Jewish 
writings as well before the time of Christ where they would just, it's like, you know what, this is a revelation from God and it's about this individual and their and events that happened and it would just, and, but they would tag and they felt legitimate to do that. Yeah. Because it's like the spirit of God reveals this to me and this is a revelation. And they were very sincere in what they were doing. Yeah. It was actually considered by them a legitimate thought press. Now in our modern 21st century Western mentality, we would say, what? Yeah. <laughs> be like, but mm. it, it, yeah. When you have to get back into the way that the ancients actually thought about documentation, which is why what happened, uh, one of the, uh, there was a number of players who were very important in, um, uh, which documents made it to the New Testament. A fellow named Tertullian was very big in that. Uh, before that, you had uh, people like Polycarp and 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 uh, a fellow who wrote really the first church history, a fellow named Arrhenius. Uh, who and, and, and so you have a lot of these people who had... That must be so different. crazy, though, just being like, we are called to put together... The New Testament, the Bible. Bible. (laughs) It's like, goodness, I wouldn't sleep for months. I would be stressing because think about it. It's like, this is the Bible and you have got to be, I would say in the word, but they're putting together the word, you know, it's like, that's really it. And so uh, there, and there's a ton of of documents that didn't make the cut. Well, yeah. And they're called the pseudo epigrapha. Okay. Um, Yeah. Pseudo meaning fake they're, okay, well, not, they're, not e- fake, but. they're either fake or they couldn't be proven to the threshold yeah and and so the thing about it is so you have and then it was because and let me tell you something there are churches that actually include some of these documents to this day in places like uh, the syrian church the um, ethiopic uh, church um, all these places, depending on what parts of the Middle East you're in, there are still churches that include the Shepherd of Hermas in their canon of Scripture or the Gospel of Barnabas. What? Yes. What's, what? It's okay. Like, oh, so yeah. Gospel of Barnabas, I can kind of wrap my head around what that one's about. But what's the other one? Yeah, Hermas was a very notable uh, early uh, uh, first... Let's say I think it was late first century or early second century uh, uh, churchman, and his writings were profound, and so basically uh, they were taken in and and just like the letters of Paul or or whoever, these things were considered scripture or if not scripture, worthy to be read in the congregation. Oh wow! So there was actually. Uh, <laughs> A lot of documentation that actually, uh, in the first few centuries of the church, uh, basically were read. They were basically just... all over the churches, and even if they weren't accepted as having the weight of, um, of say the Gospels, which uh, I like the way I was thinking it was Justin Martyr who basically termed them the memoirs of the apostles. Yeah. Which I think is was a nice way of putting it, especially since there was so many phony gospels out there. And so he basically, uh, you know, wanted to separate the true gospels from all the bogus ones that were floating around out there. But yeah, there was a lot of really interesting things that honestly, for people who want to understand what the first few century churches believed and how, how they understood the world, um, 
it pays to actually read some of this stuff is do we put it on uh, a scale as the Gospels or Acts or, or the letters of Paul what we currently have in the New Testament obviously not but strictly from a, an understanding church history and the development of Christian thought it, it certainly is it's worth studying it's worth uh, definitely a read and so and I have I've read them but it's been honestly far too long I should actually uh, there are collections of these that are out there and, and they're readily accessible and I should actually get back to doing that well this actually happened and I probably because I we went what well, appears to be off the rails we went on a tangent but I, I bet you anything those people when they were putting together they're like one criteria they need to be a disciple I bet you some guy was like I got this napkin that Judas wrote something on they're like burn it we don't want it. <laughs> Let's see. I bet you there's someone out there who's like, oh, I've got a gospel of Judas and it's... Well, see, and but that gets us back to the book of Jude, for instance, yeah. because James was a big deal because it's like, well, he's not an apostle. He's actually the half-brother of Jesus. Yeah. And basically, he was pretty much running the show at the first church of Jerusalem back in the first century. Really? Yeah. When they talk about certain, the Judaizer party that was of the circumcision and all of that, you're really talking about James, the okay. half-brother of Christ. Um, he was an intimidating presence. Even even Peter and a lot of these guys that followed Christ were very intimidated by this Well, guy. yeah, because he just come in and be like, you going, you going back talk to me? Did and I tell you who like, I'm the half-brother of? And, and so, but, and so, and, but uh, Jude is also a half-brother of Christ. Oh, Yes, Jesus had a number of, of half-brothers. And so um, Jude, because he is the half-brother of Christ, and though he only writes apparently the one one chapter. Didn't have much to say, thing, but he what he did say was important. But he was considered worthy of inclusion. That's but right. there was some actual controversy because he quotes something. He quotes something. And there's really no getting away with it. If you, if you actually read the quote... In, uh, in in Jude, basically. And I, I think that's actually worthy of me actually flipping over there and, and checking that one out because um, he does something here that actually kind of freaks a few people out. And I, I get that. It's one of those things where people don't want to... Well, someone always says something that makes them feel uncomfortable. Well, what he did is he actually... Uh, quoted something called Enoch. Now there are yeah. there's like three books of Enoch, and and Jude quotes uh, Enoch. In fact, he quotes. Uh, uh, let me see. I believe it is First Enoch. I want to make sure because I'm accurate on this. And let's see. I wanted to make sure of it enough that I actually. Uh, wrote it down and I'll yes he first Enoch chapter 1 verse 9 and he quotes it in Jude verses uh, 14 and 15 where he talks about and Enoch also the seventh from Adam prophesied of these saying behold the Lord cometh with 10,000 of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to commit all their ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him now why is that important well first of all Jude is quoting a source that's not in the New Testament yeah 
And there was actually some, some dispute over whether these books uh, that are labeled the first, second, and third books of Enoch, whether these would actually make the cut. Now, they did, obviously. Uh, they're not in our Bibles today. But it is interesting that not only did Jude, but did believe that other um, New Testament writers also quoted from Enoch. You would think with enough quotes that would have got you in, but... Well, that's... But... Again, that's one of those things. It just it didn't was happen. Not an easy bar to pass. No. Nor should it have been. No. And so, and there are. This those, should have been difficult. <laughs> the scholarship believes, and this is what the scholarship believes, that the books of Enoch were basically written about, oh, about three to five hundred years before Christ, and they're obviously not by Enoch, uh, which is the whole dispute. And then, of course, the question is, did these think were these things? You know, people would debate whether these were written a whole cloth in the centuries before Christ, or did they actually preserve actually earlier earlier records and yeah. all of this? And of course, that you know, people can dispute that all the live long day. Uh, honestly, there's not enough ancient documentation to either prove or disprove that. But the fact is, the uh, books of Enoch were known. Uh, in Jesus's day, um, there is evidence that scholars are providing today to show that actually, of course, Jesus and the disciples would have been familiar with them. They were well known in first century uh, Judea. And so they were often, uh, they were known to rabbis, to scribes, the, the various lawyers of the law. Everybody knew these things and were familiar with these things. Uh, they weren't scripture, scripture, because they weren't part of the Torah, but uh, they were like they were side well pieces. Known, you know, and so now it is in the books of Enoch that we get a little more background and sense. And again, this is not scripture. Yeah. Okay. However, the fact that basically the New Testament writers were familiar with these things and attach some importance to it, basically means that we can, with some justification, look at these uh, outside sources, and at least, if people want to take it with a grain of salt, that's certainly understandable, but the books of Enoch talk about, basically, the falling of these watcher beings, and what happens to them. And basically, there are about 200 of these watchers, these sons of God, these angelic beings, who are basically put in a maximum security holding uh, <laughs> uh, place, basically for because until the time of their judgment, because they are fallen angels, there is no redemption for them. Period. Well, uh, it's like this wasn't a thing where you know, uh, you, you know, there's it's like mankind fell in the garden and all that, and I'm going to make a way of redemption. God makes it very clear to these. Uh, angelic beings, you're toast. I'm, I mean, I'm just locking you up. And basically, when I judge the whole world, I'm, I'm coming down hard. You forget it. Oh, by the way, not only am I not going to provide a plan of redemption for you, but your hybrid children don't get a plan of redemption either. Oh, geez. Uh, so so to, to say that God was pretty... Uh, he was upset about this. He was pretty frosted about this. I mean, um, these are angels who had been in his presence. Yeah. These are angels who had, you know, it's like, no, 
you you don't get any. Yeah, they were in heaven. Like they knew God. They were exactly. in His presence. They did that, and it's like, it's almost like they just stabbed him in the back. They were like, they just went off, and they're like, yeah, we get it. We've been in your presence. We did all that, but we're gonna go do this. And so that was that was the thing. He came down, and he came down hard. Um, now here's the thing, though. You've got these hybrid beings, these Nephilim. And the problem with them is there's no redemption for them. So what happens to these beings when they die? Their spirits leave their body. They certainly cannot go to heaven. They apparently do not go to Sheol. They don't go to hell. They don't go, there's, there's no place for these, these creature spirits. What happens to these um to these Nephilim once their physical bodies die. Well, <laughs> I was going to say, what happens? <laughs> they become the creatures we refer to as demons. Okay. So that's why in the first five chapters of Genesis, you don't hear any talk about demons because they ain't, they ain't there. Yeah. Um, it's only six onward where you're going and there's not a lot of talk about them in the Old Testament um, it was pretty much an understood because you have these creatures and that's why God was constantly saying to like the children of Israel when you they went in the land you do not want to have anything to do with these because there were giants after the flood as well as before the flood yeah a lot of these people are referred to uh, they were living in the land of Canaan when Joshua rolled into town and they actually had to battle with these things and some of them they destroyed some of them were a, hand, a small number of them escaped to certain towns and all that and so they were constantly dealing with these people who were descended from these creatures um, you have uh, people like uh, the Anakim the Anakim um, the, the children of Anak, who are who are giants, and, and they're in the land of Canaan uh, at the time uh, that Joshua was rolling in there. And that's why it's like, look, we were like grasshoppers in their sight. These guys are huge. They're ginormous. Basically, you know, they, they looked at us like we were bugs. And it's like, uh, so, yeah, they were, they were terrified of these guys. That is wild to yeah. think. Like, even after the book, because, I mean, Whenever someone thinks of giants and all that stuff, obviously they go back and they think of David and Goliath, and you've got that. Exactly. So Goliath, I'm assuming, was, with all this, he was like a, a Nephilim. Descendant, or, a descendant yeah. of these. But man, I would have hated that. You know, you go into a whole city and there's like, and it's a bunch of them. I mean, yeah, David. Yeah, there's the ones that are generally referred to as the Rephaim by that time. Oh, really? That's a weird little term, too. Oh, they're they're really debating about what the term Rephaim means and what it relates to and all of this sort of things. And they use terms like Rephaim and Rephaite and all this sort of thing because they're trying to draw a distinction. Because you, it seems like they've got the same term used for two different groups. Yeah, one is a group of people that basically were living in Canaan at the time Joshua and the children of Israel arrives after the. Four years in the wilderness. 
And so you have these people, but you also have these Rephaim, which are different things. And their, uh, their connotation is that of uh, spirits or uh, shades or yeah, shades, shadows, spirits, and, and basically the dead. Really? And so, yeah. And so the problem is when you have the same term used for both, people are looking for a context and understanding. Yeah. That's one of the current debates that's going on. Because yeah, when you're saying something like spirits and shades and shadows, you're like, okay, well, what do you, like, what is that um, exactly? Yeah, that's one of the things that, uh, as, as, and I remember doing some research on this some time ago, and, uh, you know, I have my own viewpoint that I'll share here. Your mileage may vary. But what I believe the Rephaim actually refers to when you start getting into those situations is I believe what you had was a group of physical people, the Rephaim, who were actually inhabited by the departed demonic spirits of their ancestors. So you just had a bunch of possessed people walking around. Basically, you had generational possession in which these Rephaim were dying. Yeah. And their spirits would then move into their descendants. Well, that makes sense. And then when they died, all of the spirits would move into the generations. So you have this. And Joshua thing. walked into that. Was it Joshua you said? Yes, uh, Joshua. Yeah. And, I and, bet and I would have lost my turn. mind. Well, Jacob, uh, pardon me, Caleb and Joshua had been aching for that showdown for like 40 years. They had been, but they're different. I would have tripped out. I'm like, what is up with these folks? It's like, uh, it's like, no, we, I said, we, like, listen, yeah. God would have let us take them 40 years ago. God will help us take them now. I like so, that. I like that kind of thing. Yeah, he had, uh, he had serious, uh, serious uh, courage and faith. And so, yeah, so you still had these things going on. And then, of course, you do have the famous story about Goliath and his uh, four brothers. So I recall the four brothers were actually larger than he was. Yeah, I think Goliath and, was like the baby of the group, which is weird to say. Yeah. And then you've got, uh, let's say, I believe, what was his name? Og, the king of Bashan. And it's like he was basically one of these uh, uh, deals as well. And the thing about it is he, they talked about his, the size of his bed. And based on whether there were like different, they give his, the measurement of his bed in what's called cubits. Yeah. And so basically, depending on what kind of ancient cubit you were using, there was what, there was a standard cubit. Uh, there's talk about a royal cubit and it all depends on the, basically, uh, one of them was like the length of a man's elbow to his fingertip. Okay. And so... Depending on which of the cubits it uh, was used, the bed that he slept in was either 9 feet long or 13 feet long. Jeez. So basically, you're talking about a pretty big boy there. Yeah. And so when you have these guys that are walking around, that's pretty intimidating. So, um, But again, if God has called you to do something, you take on the fight. Yeah, because God wouldn't call you to it if he wasn't going to bring you through it. Exactly. So, you know, you have these things. And like I say, the you have, again, there's, you have these demonic spirits who basically now are disembodied Nephilim. Yeah. And 
the thing about these things is they basically have been used to having a physical form and being able to express their desires uh, based on the, the ancient records in Enoch and other places. These things were cannibalistic. Uh, they were definitely oversexed. Uh, they were extraordinarily violent. Um, they were given all kinds of various vices. Uh, and Basically, so, everything bad is what they were, in a sense. Yeah, and, and so it's one of those things where it's like, okay. And what they're looking for is they're looking for a host. Yeah. They're looking for a person who is either wittingly or unwittingly opening a door of access to allow them to come in. Yeah. It goes back to a previous program where we talked about spirits, even the spirits of the Nephilim, operate in the earth realm by permission. Yeah. And they gain access by permission. And so that it goes back to that. Well, the the term demon, that's a that's uh, that's not a Hebrew term, that's a Greek term. And the Greeks had this term for basically uh, these spirit beings that uh, would impart wisdom, um, that would guide people, and that would at variously empower them. Um, a modern and the Greeks and the Romans did not consider demons to be evil. Really? Uh, yeah, but you got to remember the Greeks and the Romans were lost as geese. Yeah, I mean, I mean, when you're lost as a goose, you have a tendency to have a really jacked up. um, You have a different outlook on things. Exactly. People talk today about things like spirit guides. Yeah. And they think these things are benign. Uh, We've talked about people who are involved with various kinds of the occult, but they don't really see what they're doing as being evil. Yeah. Or they draw a differentiation between what they practice and what they do and believe as opposed to others who they believe uh, access powers and rituals and do things for dark purposes. And so they seem to think that, you know, if they do it, it's okay because they're doing it with the right motivations for the right reasons. It's one of those things. Whereas other people will. Yeah. If you just don't know you're doing something wrong, then you're, then you don't even assume anything is wrong. You're just used to, you're like, this is just what I'm doing. I'm not hurting anybody, but in the end, you're the one who's going to end up getting hurt the and most. That, and that was the what was going on in the Greco-Roman culture. They were being basically... Manipulated, it sounds Manipulated, like. they were deceived, they were um, manipulated, they were at many times empowered by or possessed by, influenced by, guided by demons. Yeah. Now, you know... Regardless of what the Greco-Roman frame of thinking was, when you get to the New Testament and you start reading the ministry of Jesus and you start looking at every time he's it, it, he is casting out demons, uh, demons, and it's in the Greek, it's not vague. It is the same term, daemon. Yeah. So it's not a thing where there's any vague things. These things that even though the Greeks and Romans thought they were, they were just part of their everyday culture. That You're right. It, we talked about this before when, you know, people are brainwashed since birth. Yeah. They're raised in a culture. They don't know anything different. Their family teaches, does, practices this. Their, their teachers, their culture yeah. is just part of, the, of 
of their way of life. Of their way of it's life. It's like being, you're like, my grandfather was a plumber. My dad was a plumber. I'm a plumber. Nothing changes. You just keep going about the way you do things because that's just all you know. And then Jesus came in and started changing everything. That puts a different, like, way of thinking on it. Because if Jesus was there doing that, casting out demons, like, it doesn't surprise you why everybody was freaking out. They're like, we like these things. Well, here's the thing with the... When he was sent, because he was sent to his own and his own received him not, God was very uh, hardline. He made it very clear when they entered the promised land, you do not worship those gods. You do not do these practices. You do not associate with this. You do not intermarry with these people. You do not adopt their culture, their values, their ways, their practices, and all that. Yeah. And so... um, the interactions that they were doing were of such a nature that it was opening up the Jews to demonic influence and possession. Hmm. You had things that were going on that ought not to be going on. And as a result, Jesus was going through and there's like 63 times in the New Testament in the ministry of Jesus where he's casting out demons. And so... um, they may not they may not have been seen by the Greeks and the Romans as anything but benign, but or, or one of those things they can be good or bad, but every single time that Christ encounters one, there ain't no good demon. No. So uh, for the believer, that's something you know we are. This is this is the enemy. The enemy are. Besides the ones we talked about in Ephesians weeks ago, there are, these are the Nephilim, and we need to understand that. Now, there are still, let's, let's be honest, there are still Nephilim today. Oh, yeah. Um, and so you, you're looking at this, and again, you're, you're looking at, uh, this is one of the things that current uh, researchers and, uh, are discussing various books are being written and honestly i really need to actually start reading some of them um i have not looked into this as near as much as uh as i probably uh well it's one of those things there's just so much i feel like to it it really and it gets really ticky in certain things honestly in the last decade you're seeing well in the last 20 years definitely but seriously in the last decade you're finding more about this actually being written about, being spoken about, being taught about than years ago. I, I mean, back in the 80s when we discussed, you know, uh, I remember having discussions in the 80s with people about, uh, you know, Genesis chapter 6 and all that. Uh it was always just this small group of us. You know? Yeah. Uh, I remember a fellow that uh, I knew years ago, and he would always, uh, there's these people that love the oddball things. Yeah. That you find in scripture that's like, hey, wait a minute. Nobody ever teaches about this. You know? I relate Nobody to that so much. About that. It's like, well, what there, about this? Yeah, well, there's so much things, so many little things in the Bible that it's like, are odd, like the Nephilim. And. Or like one of the things I told you about, where is like in Job, where God was basically telling, it was at the end where Job, he was, God was telling Job everything. He's like, where were you when I hung the stars and all that stuff? He's like, where were you when I was 
forget what he said, but it was something about Leviathan. And I'm like, wait, God says something about Leviathan. What does that mean? I'm <laughs> yeah. like, if God says it, he's not just being artsy and metaphorical. No. He literally did. I'm like, what is that? And then you get into, it was either Ruth or Jude where uh, you've got Michael the Archangel and he's got Moses' body. And the devil's there and he's wanting Moses' body. And it's like, what is this? It's great. There's like a bunch of little things in the Bible that doesn't get talked about. Well, that's it. And unfortunately, part of the problem is we, we tend to be wanting to basically God make... God becomes, in many people's interpretation, the God of perpetual hyperbole. Yeah. He's constantly over speaking everything as... And, and honestly, the way they think God speaks is is rather bizarre to me, because they I understand that there is a certain amount of poetry in the Bible and all this, but they make it as though everything is poetry. It's all and, a metaphor. It's all uh, yeah, and it's like well, that's when he talks about when he stretches out the heavens, and all of that, which is really interesting. He stretches out the heavens. Well, if you start looking at string theory. Yeah. And how that works. Um, it's like, hmm, you know, I think he might have been telling Job a little more than what yeah. Job or basically anybody else until maybe the last century or so uh, really understood. But then that's assuming that the ancients really didn't understand a lot of these things. Yeah. I think that they had a lot more access to direct information that we did. In fact, that was one of the things that basically God came down on the Watchers for. Because they were imparting things to humanity that he did not want them to know. Yeah. And it's like, you don't need to do this. You don't need to be practicing this. This is a little, you do not hire, you do not give a five-year-old the keys to the Ferrari. No. Uh, you you don't do this because this is a wreck and, and destruction waiting to happen. They were rushing things along, probably. They were letting them know too much. Indeed. God always operates... Um, if you live a life of faith, what you find out is God basically gives information on a need-to-know basis. Oh, yeah. And most of the time, we don't need to know. We may want to know. We may think we need to know. But most of the time, we don't need to know. Uh, we need to trust. We need to listen. And we need to obey. Uh, and he doesn't mind if we ask questions because sometimes he's actually provoking us mm -hmm. to actually seek him for more. Uh, but we need to understand that sometimes... Um, you know, the thing about faith is, um, uh, at some point you're going to have to step out there yeah, based not on what you know, but on what you've heard. Well, some like, here's the thing. If God just told us everything up front, then we wouldn't really so much need to need to trust him or have faith in him because it's like, all right, well, God said it. And there's no point in really seeking him because all you got to do is ask and then he'll just tell you. It's it like there are times where you where God will let you know things, but for the most part, he keeps it like said on need to know basis, because if he didn't, then, you know, why do we why would we trust him? Why would we have to why would we have faith in him? Well, that's it. If, God, if somebody gives you the full script, if somebody gives you the full blueprint, then at that point, your need for faith evaporates. Yeah. Once it's all right there in front of you. I mean. That's the whole thing. Faith is the faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not yet seen, basically. Yeah. And so 
that's one of those things. If if you can see it, if it's there, then where's your faith in? Exactly. Um, There's so, no point in it. Exactly. So with the Nephilim, okay, so the spirit of, I believe, Nephilim and all that stuff is still active in today's time. Yes. And part of me is thinking like this, you know, with when you look at the book of Revelations and all that stuff, it just kind of says like in the days of Noah, so will it be. What, what, uh, yeah. yeah. If, am I right on that? Yeah. When, well, actually, it's in the Gospels when oh, Christ Gospels. basically was asked about what the time of his coming. And he says, basically, as it was in the time uh, of uh, Noah, so shall it be at the return of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and giving marriage. Yeah. Basically, until the day that God shut up, they basically the uh, where he closed the door on the ark. No okay. destruction came. And that's so the they way were, they were doing that all the way up till the doors got shut. Yeah. Wow. Well, I mean, look at it. The desire for normalcy. This is something that I spoke on recently uh, in, in a meeting. And uh, <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll probably touch on this before the end of the year. But let's be perfectly honest. Um, how desperately are people trying to cling to normalcy in 2020? It's the only thing that people are talking about. They I mean, want to go back to normal. Can I, can I have my normal back? Yeah. And they, and are, they weren't even happy with the normal they had. Well, you know, complaining is the national pastime. It really, yes. <laughs> get on Facebook, get on Twitter, any, any social media. Nobody's happy. The most viewed things on YouTube are like 10 things I hated about something. It's like no one wants to hear the good. They just want to hear complaining. Well, that's it. People's hope for 2021 is to have the same, uh, is to have, have the normalcy that they complained about in 2019. Exactly. And so when you look at this, you're, you're looking at a situation where people are desperately clinging to normal. And they will cling to the normal even as... Um, even as things are falling apart because there's something called a normalcy bias. And I wasn't familiar with this term for many years, but I learned it in the last few years. Normalcy bias. And that is this stubborn refusal to basically understand that things are changing, that normal is no longer going to be normal, and the ability to change with it. It's sort of like many years ago, there was this uh, uh, activity that happened on a volcano in the United States, Mount St. Helens. And they knew this thing was gonna blow at some point. It was obviously active and they were telling people, you need to get your butts out of Dodge. You need to, you need to get out of town. And thankfully, most people did. Yeah. But there were these stubborn people who could not or would not accept the obvious proof that was right in front of their eyes. This thing's going to blow and it's going to be ugly. And so they refused to. Well, because they were clinging to normal, because they refused to accept the reality that normal was about to change and this thing was about to blow and it was going to be messy, they didn't leave with the predictable results. Yeah. And unfortunately, 
this desperate cling to normal, whatever normal is, uh, which, you know, normal, the normal changes based on where you at, where you were at and when you are at, um, this clinging to normalcy is a thing that basically, um, we, we see here in, in scripture when Christ is referring to this, people are going to be desperately clinging to normalcy. Even the crazier, uh, uh things get. Yeah. Um, they're going to be wanting to establish normal. They're going to want to be clinging to normal. Uh, but the thing about it is normal itself will have changed. But this thing that Jesus said, now the obvious principle here is that basically this is the way people's mentality is going to be. But if we expand this understanding, and many Bible preachers and teachers do, that this is not just beyond the attitudes of people, but when he says, as it was in the days of Noah, that this is how it's going to be, period. And there is some justification for this based on just what you're seeing going on. Because when you're seeing what's going on today, uh, this is why people are talking about what, call it, call it a return of, an, of the Nephilim or a term, the or a return of the Nephilim. Um, that you're going to see a situation where people, you're, you're going to see these creatures again. Um, there is, um, uh, unfortunately, there are a number of people that are doing really weird stuff with genetics nowadays. Oh, yeah. Um, and they are looking to produce very bizarre things. Um, We've already seen the abuses of cloning technology. Oh, yeah. That's not a conspiracy theory. That's not that's not disputable. People have already cloned things that they shouldn't have cloned. Was it like Dolly the sheep got cloned or something? Exactly. Then she got like what? Didn't she get like cancer and die or something? Uh, I do she, believe Dolly did not have a long shelf life. No, you know, she, she did didn't not make it very long. I knew she died quick, but you know that's that's a thing. And and so what you're seeing is there's more of a a desire for um, genetic manipulations that you're seeing now but it's not just genetic manipulations these things are being practiced on on uh, on animals and although we would like to pretend otherwise you can pretty much be sure that they're being done on humans basically it's just being done in secret in secret. Oh yeah, because so, it's not something that can be put on the news and everyone be and it be widely accepted. Exactly. That's not that's not going to happen. There are treaties about these things or international agreements that are supposed to be ab uh, uh, abided by, but you know how that works. Oh yeah. You know. Oh sure. Uh, shake your hands. Everybody winks and then goes off to do their own little. They do their secret own specialized research. They got the little area that no one knows about. Their secrets in. They go off and they do their thing. And so when you've got things that are going on, when you're manipulating the genetic codes of humans. And, oh, yeah. Uh, the, the truth of the matter is, um, and by the way, there are, there are, when you go back into the legends of ancient pagan uh, religions, it's like you, you have these weird hybrid creatures. Now, we talked about the ones that, 
the Bible specifically refers to. And of course, that's the Nephilim. The But you look at these things and you have these creatures that are being running around. Now people will say, well, they're just literary inventions or fairy tales or all that. Really? Um, take the a centaur, for instance. Yeah. Or you have this half goat, half man creature called a satyr. A satyr, or yeah, or uh, with Pan being the uh, best known of, of those. And so you have those kind of creatures. Well, what other kind of creatures were actually walking around? Um, because the sixth chapter of, of uh, Genesis basically just barely touches on on that material but if you have such things it's like these things can be if they happen once they can happen again oh yeah and then again you have another thing and that's is this thing and we talked about it in a previous thing this thing about uh incubus and succubus yeah spirits that basically assume forms um, incubus, the form of a male to have sexual relations, a, um, a succubus, which takes on the, uh, a more female characteristics yeah. in order to have, uh, relations. And so you have these things that are going on. Um, these things are occurring. Yeah. I mean, these, these things are not, are not, these they're not jokes they're not fairy tales they're not conspiracy theories they're happening and it's not jokes to the people who it's happening to like if you look up interviews or read articles about these people who partake in this stuff it's like this isn't a joke to them this is very serious to them exactly um this is this is one of those things where you're really looking at uh people who are taking this seriously and 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 honestly many of these people Many of them are traumatized by it, but then there are those that are really into it. Yeah. Um, the the situations with those who are really into it are very, are more frightening, because you actually have people that are actually trying to bring things from the spirit realm. They're trying to actually open gateways, doorways, portals, whatever you want to call. Yeah. For spirits to operate, mm-hmm. and so including basically becoming impregnated by these things oh yeah well, there's people who go to that level and it's like this isn't a new new thing at all no like honestly if you just think about like uh if you want to just go back in history a little bit you got people like alistair crowley and anton LaVey. these people were wanting to bring in spirits to the world they're wanting to conjure up things and stuff it's a little bit i guess of a different route but that's not much different from what some of these people are wanting to do when they're bringing in, you know, an incubus or a succubus or even like Nephilim spirits or anything like that. It's like, this isn't a new thing. And there's popular no. people that you can look up and see that, oh yeah, these are people actually practice, trying to practice stuff. Yeah. Uh, un- unfortunately, we, we mentioned in a previous episode, ritual sex magic. Yeah. Uh, that's being performed uh, is uh, the sexual component of, of this sort of stuff can't be uh, really understated. You, you have to you have to be cognizant of the fact that this stuff is, is going on or has went on. If you look at what uh, went on in various of the sex cults of the ancient world, 
um, we're coming to the time of year where basically uh, we're just a short period of time uh, from December rolling around. Oh yeah. Well, you know the, the we're already almost at December. Yeah. That's the side topic. Yeah, but wow. Anyways, sorry. It, yeah, it, it it has been an interesting year. And, it's been and quick. It, yeah, it it has flown by, but. You know, people in modern 21st century America, you know, we have our various holidays. Christians and and most of America will think of Christmas. Uh, people of Jewish descent will look to Hanukkah. Uh, people of African descent will, will uh, focus many times on Kwanzaa. Um, then you have people that will focus on the solstice. Um, yeah. And so you have all of these different, you know, but the, but in ancient times you had the rites of, uh, and the uh, the bacchanalia, and it wasn't just a perpetual eating and drinking party. That was extraordinarily dark. Oh yeah, there was there was horrific things going on there uh, during that time of year. That was uh, you know. Pretty ghastly, and I won't go into all the yeah. details. This, this is, this can be. There are sources for this. At some point in time, we might talk about this. But it's it, and let's be honest, it was hardly a new thing. No, you had this kind of stuff going on in ancient times with the sex cults of Aphrodite, Venus, uh, Ashtoreth, and and all of this. Um, the interactions. Uh, that happened in those things you you have, and these were not just about um, uh, celebrating like a holiday or something. It was it, yeah, it wasn't about it. Well, it wasn't about hedonism, hedonism either. It wasn't about oh, you know, hey, I want to go yeah. and get froggy yeah. at the uh, temple of of Aphrodite or whatever. You know, it, it might have been for some people. Uh, but it was more than just about the carnal pleasures of sex. And it was, there was a very um, deep-rooted spiritual component to what they were doing. Oh, yeah. It was not just about um, physical pleasure. It was an actual, um, call it a rite, call it a... Uh, it was a ritual. Uh, yeah. Use that term. You were going through and, and doing things by the numbers because you wanted to create an effect. You went there for a purpose more than just carnal stuff. Exactly. It was a spiritual thing. And these things weren't hidden back in the day either. These were just kind of like... They were understood to the ancients. Yeah. We, here, the problem we have today is, for instance, we're far in too much denial. There's the old line... Uh, it may have been in uh, from Milton's Paradise Lost. I uh, can't recall right offhand. It's like basically the best lie that Saint never told was that he didn't exist. Yeah. And uh, we we see that many people do not believe in a literal devil. They don't believe in literal demons. They don't believe in a and in, in the spiritual realm. Uh, they'll believe in UFOs, but they won't believe in, you know... In, because in that is too Jesus. big <laughs> of a jump. <laughs> too big of a faith leap. Listen, we got crystals, and we've got UFOs, and that's fine. But a demon, that's too far. Which I never understood that. I'm like, why can't you just make the jump? 
<laughs> well, again, it, well, because but it's of denial. The consequences. Exactly. If you make the jump, then you have to deal with the consequences. If you say there's a demon and you say that the devil is real, then that means that God has to be real. Exactly. And if, if the, there is a God, you're responsible. Exactly. And at, at that point, it's like if demons are real, then angels are real. If Satan is real, then God is is real. And at that point, then it comes realize, back on you. Yes. At that point, you've got a situation where you're going to have to choose up a side and you're going to have to make a commitment and it's going to affect how you live the rest of your life. Yep. And so that's the real issue that people don't want to go to. They don't want to go down that road because they don't want to have to make the choice. And instead of doing that, they just stick with Bigfoot. And they're like, this is what I'm going to say is real. <laughs> and I'm going to go camping once a month and find him. That's what they do instead. So, but that's really where, where it's, it's going to. We're, we're looking at a situation where, honestly, people are inviting spirits to move in the earth realm. They're going through rituals. Uh, both sexual and other, to bring these these entities to. It will not be surprising to me if, if in fact, we do see a return or the return of the Nephilim. Yeah. Um, we're, we're going to see this kind of situation uh, as people continue to open wider uh, these doors. And, unfortunately, these creatures are being popularized I don't read the current crop of uh, what's considered paranormal. Uh, I don't. I don't read that stuff. No. Um, but it is prolific. It's uh, being targeted. Yeah. Both in print and uh, in video, to uh, all ages, particularly young folks, though. Um, well, mainly because that's the generation that would be coming up. You know what I mean. If exactly. if you have the if the kids are cool with it, and you just wait year a few years, then that's the generation that'll normalize, that'll be more un, uh, accepting of it. And that's it. Once once you've opened the door on a generation, then you're in a position to pass it down or expand it. Yeah. Each generation, and we're actually seeing this because honestly, uh, being older. Uh, I benefit by uh, perspective given by years. Uh, in the 60s, you were seeing a lot of this, particularly in the later 60s, you were seeing a, a real move to the occult and such. Uh, you saw it in the 1970s, very heavy in the 70s. Um, in the 80s and 90s, um, it was still going on, but it was being packaged smarter. Yeah. And it was being played low key and the approaches were more targeted. Now you're seeing it vastly expanded as basically each generation is becoming a little more paganized than the previous generation. And people have been um, desensitized to it. They've been indoctrinated into it many times unknowingly and foundations have been laid for uh, expansions of, of this in, in certainly in the United States of America and really around the world. If you look at the amount of occultism that's, that's going on, that's actually calling for this kind of stuff. And so, you know, 
we need to be aware that demons are real. We, we know where they came from. We know what their ultimate destiny is. And that's, that's something we need to basically make the bottom line. There, when, when Christ would come, they would often scream to him, have you come, basically, before the time. Yeah. Because they understood what Jude wrote. Yeah. There was an appointed time in which the judge of all the earth was going to basically lay it down on Satan, lay it down on every fallen angel, lay it down on every Nephilim, lay it down on all of these various creatures, and would also judge every human being who ever lived. And so there is an appointment book that God has, and he has an agenda, and he's going to bring it to pass. That is, uh, he's not just, you know, one of the things that God dealt with me a while back was, and you may have noticed this, there's a change in my terminology. I tend to use the word, uh, the phrase, the almighty, yeah. a lot more than I used to. And he, because he's not, he's not the most mighty or the frequently mighty or the regularly mighty. Yeah. Or, or even the kind of mighty or the occasionally or the sort of mighty or the not very mighty. He is the almighty. And we need to keep that in mind. Whatever plans that the enemy has, he is already a defeated foe awaiting his ultimate judgment. Is yeah. he going to rail? Is he going to do uh, dirt? Absolutely. As long as he's given the space of time to do this, he will continue to do this. However, the bottom line is simply this. What we know is this. We have a spiritual war to fight. We have weapons that are not carnal. We have authority in the name of Christ. We have the power of the Holy Spirit, and we have the blessed hope that at a particular point in the history of the universe, God Almighty will send his Son to basically judge all the earth. And at that point, Satan and his fallen angels and his uh, demonic Nephilim and all of those who unfortunately will make the wrong decision will be judged and evil will be put an end to and there will be basically a new heavens and a new earth in which will dwell righteousness and that's the thing we need to remember no matter how dark we think this present evil world is and it is a very dark present evil world there is a day coming that uh, the light of of righteousness will shine um, to all the earth and a day in which that light will never end. Well, I don't really know what else to say with after that. Um, that pretty much is, I think that's a really cool way to end the show. Uh, unless you have more revelation you want to just drop on me. <laughs> I think uh, any further revelation will be for a yeah. program. Oh, yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to today's show. If you want to stay up to date on all things regarding this show, please follow our Instagram page at voice in the wilderness underscore podcast, or check out our Facebook page at voice in the wilderness. 
We also have a YouTube channel called Voice in the Wilderness. So please subscribe to it. Follow me on all the social media. If you're listening to this on a streaming service that allows you to follow me, please do that. If you're listening to this and they allow reviews or something like that, please leave me a review. Every little bit helps. Thank you so much for all your support.